Another iPhone Zero Day, a patchy Apache patch, and Cyber Month continues this week, fighting phishing. All that and more on the Naked Security Podcast. Welcome to the podcast, everyone. I am Doug. He is Paul. We are both happily running Windows 11, Paul. Yes. I was running it because I have a Linux computer. I was running in the VirtualBox virtual machine system, which doesn't yet in its regular version support the TPM2 chip that Windows 11 needs. So there's a whole lot of jiggery-pokery I had to do with older versions. But I finally found the not quite released next version of VirtualBox and downloaded it, installed the Enterprise Evaluation Edition of Windows 11. Works fine. And I was a little nervous at first because it's generally, you know, you want to wait till the kinks get ironed out, but I downloaded it on the first day, loaded it up. I've had no problems. In fact, I'm quite enjoying it. So It's uncool to say it, isn't it? Everyone loves to hate the new Windows. Mm-hmm. But I must say, I... I've been I've had it for a for a month or so now with the the pre-release version. I don't use it every day obviously, but just visually my opinion is it looks great. I love it. I have a reasonably new computer that's reasonably powerful and I have noticed that uh, anecdotally it it feels much faster than Windows 10, which I didn't expect. I was thinking, you know, just a fresh coat of paint, but it feels it feels snappier, which I was pleasantly surprised by. So well, Paul, we like to begin the show with a fun fact, and this fun fact will tie into our This Week in Tech History segment later in the show. The fun fact for this week is apparently, and I'm going to say apparently because it's really hard to pin these down, but apparently the first online food order was performed in 1996 by none other than Steve Jobs. Jobs used a new service called CyberSlice, which partnered with more than 1,000 pizza parlors in Boston, New York, San Francisco, and Seattle. Of course, we'll talk more about this in our This Week in Tech History segment. I believe he ordered a cheese pizza with uh, some sort of garnish on it, but not 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 an exciting pizza order. Hang on, I thought he was a vegan, Doug. I suppose you get vegan cheese, don't you? Or maybe he wasn't a vegan in 1996. Who knows? All those things could be true. I I seem to remember of a food online food order being done in the early 1990s, though it may have been somebody managed to program a voice dialing system to call a pizza parlor. So here's a challenge to our listeners. If anyone did order food, even if it was just that you managed to send a fax using a computer or you programmed a voice synthesizer to phone your local pizza parlor and they accepted it and then delivered, we want to hear about it. Yes. I remember uh, my old stomping grounds after I graduated college being in the Tacoma, Washington area, and all the restaurants would take orders by fax and just thinking how easy it would have been when I was younger and more enterprising and had more energy to develop a, an email to fax service that would allow you to order such things online. That was after 1996, though. I'm sure someone far more intelligent than me could have, could have cobbled that together. Well, there was a famous variable name in... Windows 3 that I I think that may have been replicated in Windows 95 and the variable name was Burgermaster. Aha. Uh-huh. <laughs> because that was the favorite burger joint that all the Microsoft <laughs> guys used and so they needed a, a name for some like pseudo secret variable and uh, so it was called Burgermaster. 
Well, maybe f- to be on the safe side, maybe we'll just change this fun fact to once Steve Jobs ordered a pizza. Uh, stay tuned later in the show. We'll learn more about his involvement with this company. But uh, ah. another company he's involved with, Apple, <laughs> is uh, issued yet another. It feels like every week we're talking about some sort of zero day. And this time it's uh, corrupting the kernel for an Apple device, which is serious because the kernel is kind of one app to rule all apps, as it were. Yes, the security bulletin, which at the time I wrote this up on Naked Security, I've updated the article now, I knew that the that the bug was there because I went to Apple's site and I, I tried a few bug numbers of go ahead a bit, you know, direct object reference. I tried the last HT21, whatever it was, nothing, nothing, nothing. Then I got one about iPhone 13s and synchronizing with your watch. Then I got a few dud pages. Then I got one that said, hey, iOS 15.0.2. And oh, that's interesting. Oh, golly, came out 11th of October, 2021. And it's in a component called IO Mobile Frame Buffer, which is a kind of API kernel component that allows a regular app to interact with the kernel to make to find certain specific things out about the video display. And it just says, as <laughs> you will have heard these words before on this podcast, an application may be able to execute arbitrary code with kernel privileges and then Apple is aware of a report that this issue may have been actively exploited, which I just translated in my head into in the wild, zero day. Very verbose, as Apple normally is with these updates. So as you say, this is not that you can poke a stick into an app and make the app misbehave and take the app over, which is bad enough. It's as though you can get an app to misbehave in a way that gets the kernel to misbehave where, as you say, you take over what you might call the meta app or the the one app to rule them all. And generally, as we've said before, when you're when you're able to do a full kernel level compromise, where instead of injecting your rogue code into one app and being able to read all that app's data, which is bad enough, you can inject your code into the app that sets the security controls for all the other apps. And typically that's something that you would need to do, say, a jailbreak, which, as we know, is where you, you escape from Apple's security strictures entirely. So we don't know what the report was. We don't know who's using this in the wild. We don't know whether it's connected with jailbreaking, with a Pegasus-like thing, or what. But we do know that there's a patch available and that it is CVE-2021-30883. That it applies to iOS and iPad OS, so that's iPhones and iPads. And if you have version 15, you should have been on 15.0.1, but by today you definitely want to be on 15.0.2. If you have iOS 14 and iOS 12, well, we don't know. Hmm. It's a good part of the write-up here when when pe- when you hear people say, "Well, iOS is impervious to attack." What they're talking about is what you write here is that each app effectively runs as if it were a separate user with its own account and access control settings. So apps can only interact or read each other's files in carefully regulated ways. That falls apart when it's the kernel, which is overseeing all these apps and providing security controls. So, you know, it's a little bit like the difference between bribing the security guard at a specific building and bribing 
the CEO of the security <laughs> company that decides <laughs> on the security guards for the entire business operation, yeah. right? That may be a crude analogy, but you know what no, I mean? No, that's a good it's one. kind of, you're messing with the system that controls the rest of the system. Yeah. And therefore, generally, when you have a kernel compromise like this, you can go and grant apps permissions that they were never supposed to have. So suddenly, hey, now your email app can read your photos, even though the user said it couldn't, for example. Mm -hmm. All right. That is Apple quietly patches yet another iPhone zero day. Check. You have 15.0.2 on nakedsecurity.sophos.com. And we transition from one patch to another. There was an Apache patch, but that patch was patchy, and now you need to patch the patch. Yes. So many puns. And the reason I wrote that headline, Apache patch proofs patchy, now you need to patch the patch, is precisely because you had taught me on this very podcast where the name Apache server mm -hmm. came from that I hadn't realized. I thought they just named it after the Apache Nation or something like that. It shows how times have changed, right? The idea that you could actually have a special version of a web server that actually had the patches already pre-included, so you didn't have to go and re-knit the whole jumper for yourself. Yep, fun fact. Um, and one of your greatest headlines, and... might I add, of all time. I'm <laughs> happy with this. So the story is, ironically, the, the bug was only introduced in Apache 2.4.49, which came out in the middle of September, just under one month ago. So it was new code that had a rather last century bug in it namely that apache wasn't handling the magic file name or directory path dot dot which actually means go up a directory rather than go down a directory you can see why that could be dangerous in a web server let you go up and up and up and up and up and escape from where the web server's supposed to be based and supposed to have its files and jump out and start reaching into where other people keep their files mm -hmm. So they introduced this thing which was supposed to improve the handling of URLs that had path names in. You know, we have example.com slash this slash that dot the other. They introduced this in 2.4.49. And this kind of dot dot was called a path traversal bug, where you can trick the server into going up too far. So it escapes from its own security zone and starts wandering around where it's not supposed to be under somebody else's control. Like I said, very last century bug. So when I first heard about the bug, I assumed, golly, this must have been in the code for years and years and years and years, back when there was still a need to have a patchy server. <laughs> the way the bug worked is the fact that in a URL, you can actually write the dot character in two main ways. You can either send the dot, the full stop, the period character, hexadecimal 2e, or you can send what's called an escape character. You send percentage sign 2e for echo. So either send a raw dot or you send a special sequence that says, use this ASCII code. And as far as I can see, the bug was that they were, they were improving the ability to use and safely use these encoded URLs. Unfortunately, if you encoded neither of the dots and sent them through as dot dot, they detect that you'd sneakily tried to put through a dot dot, which you're not supposed to. If you put %2e followed by a dot, which gets converted to this naughty dot dot go up a directory, they detect that. But if the second dot was replaced with a %2e instead of the first, hmm. 
and they wouldn't notice. And so they put out a patch that, that made sure that when you had a dot, that it wasn't followed by a dot. So they really checked double hard for this dot, dot, slash, the go up a directory. And you can see why that's called a path traversal vulnerability. The idea is what a crook will do is they'll ask for a URL, and instead of asking for index.html, they'll ask for dot, dot, slash, dot, dot, slash, dot, dot, slash, dot, dot, slash, dot, dot. Because in Linux and Windows and Unix, if you do too many dot dots and you get to the root directory, you don't get an error. You just bounce off the ceiling if you like. You could try it on Windows. Open a command prompt. You'll be in C colon users, your name. Go cd space dot dot enter. You'll go up a directory to users. cd dot dot. You'll go up to C colon backslash the root directory. You can do as many more cd space dot dots as you like, and it'll keep going up a directory, but there isn't an upper directory to stay there. So the idea is with this trick, the dot dot slash trick, a crook will put loads of those dot dot slashes in a URL so they'll actually ascend up in this magic elevator out of the directory tree that's allocated to the web server. They'll get right up to the root directory and then they'll go down to a file they really wanted, which will be something in the system32 directory on Windows or in the slash Etsy directory in Unix or whatever. So like I said, very, very, very turn of the millennium type bug. But unfortunately, it snuck through and then it got fixed. And then the fix had to get fixed because although they now reliably detected dot, dot, slash, however the dots are encoded, they didn't reliably detect dot, dot, slash, however the slash was encoded. Oh <laughs> so, my God. so I had to rush out Apache 2.4.51, which is now the one that you want. Okay, so if I can play the part of lazy guy... Uh, this is I can put on my. Oh, I thought you would ask this. My smug. A couple of people have asked this on the site. Like, yeah. why should I care? Yeah. Yeah, my smug face. Oh well, good thing I didn't do anything, and now it's rectified yeah. itself. So yes. It... Well, every time this does happen, it is a bit of a counter argument to that, isn't it? Because mm -hmm. if you were on two dot four dot forty eight or two dot four dot nine, one of our commenters was on. Like you say, should I be smug? The problem is that if you go back and look at the list, there are a whole load of other bug fixes that weren't so high profile that have happened in the interim. And so you think that in order to get lucky this one time, you would have had to expose yourself for months and months and months. The real thing here is if, you, if you'd updated to 2.4.49, you would have been exposed to this for a month, but it was only for a very short period that this became a big deal. And so if you were prone, to patch early patch often you probably would have patched to 2.4.50 was that a waste of time because that patch needed patching so quickly i don't think so because if you look at what the patch did it was very done in a hurry it wasn't perfect but it did at least prevent the commonly circulating <laughs> anybody can do this on twitter posts from working there's two types of people there's people that patch early and often and will patch as soon as a new one comes out, and then there are people that kind of sit on it. And in this case, it sounds like even though these patches were kind of rushed out, it didn't, didn't really make things worse. And it certainly made it slightly better against the, hey, look how clever I am. I'm telling everyone in the world how to do this on Twitter. It's only one line of code. Why don't you copy and paste this? All right, that is a patchy patch. Proves patchy. Now you need to patch the patch. One of our greatest headlines in the history of Naked Security on nakedsecurity.sophos.com. And it is time for This Week in Tech History. This week, on October 12, 1988, the next computer system was released. 
with a 25 megahertz processor, 8 megabytes of RAM, and a 17-inch monitor, and a price tag of $6,500. That's north of $14,000 in today's money. The next came in a cube-shaped magnesium case and was targeted at the higher education market. The company behind the computer, Next Incorporated, was run by Steve Jobs in between his stints at Apple. And although not a commercial success at first, Next computers and technologies were used to develop the first web server and web browser, the first app store, games Doom, Doom 2, and Quake, and perhaps most importantly, the first online food delivery service, CyberSlice, which we mentioned earlier in the show. Uh, now, to run CyberSlice, did you need a Next computer as your server? Or did you need a Next computer as your client? In other words, they were definitely targeting the graduate and postgraduate markets. That is an interesting question <laughs> because <both. laughs> the, the service itself was run on an X computer, but it required the website was so uh, computationally intensive with the graphics and all the pictures and stuff like that that you needed a modern really... browser that could do all the pictures and the colors and that kind of stuff. Yeah, I, I, I get in these rabbit holes with some of these uh, fun facts and tech history stuff. So if ever you find me at a party and want to corner me and I've got a lot of useless information about uh, this, this pizza ordering app, and if you've ever done Mac programming and you've wondered why so many Mac OS and I or iOS function names start with NS and then the name of the function, it actually is short for Next Step. There we go. The old operating system that Steve brought back with him when Jobs switched to Jobs again and returned to Apple. Boy, though, is it? Do I remember correctly that the Next? It was one of those Steve Jobs design peccadillos as well, that not only did it have to be a cube, it had to be exactly 12 inches by 12 inches by 12 inches. Is that correct? That sounds about it right. It's like this perfect one cubic foot. I don't know the pictures of it. It looks, it looks larger than a cubic foot, but I could be mistaken. I just remember... Um, $6,500. Yeah, that's a lot of money, huh? Like you, you said, oh, it's fourteen thousand dollars today. Well, it doesn't matter whether it is or it isn't. It's definitely sixty five hundred dollars today. Sixty five hundred dollars. <laughs> yeah, that's still a lot. Did you ever have oh, the pleasure yes. of using one of these machines or displeasure? I have never even seen one that somebody else had. Oh well, just dreamed of them a little bit. <laughs> I can tell you that we had uh... happy with my IBM DOS PC, which though it wasn't very sophisticated was actually plenty of fun and paved the way for my career in cybersecurity. Yep. <laughs> that came out wrong, Doug, but uh -huh. you know what I mean. <laughs> yes, I do. Um, we had, uh, I worked at, as a technician at CompUSA in the early 2000s, and um, when you would walk into the shop, there was this uh, row, big, these big industrial shelves, and everyone, the, all the computers would be sitting there that need to be worked on. They'd all be assigned to some ticket, and you'd take them in order, you'd grab the ones you thought you could work on and there was an old next cube in there that was had been sitting there for months and it was just whatever the problem was no one knew how to work on it so it just sat there so we i i, I can i can tell you i've seen one in person i've touched it in that i've picked it up but i've never we we just didn't know how to work on it that could be the poisoned chalice <laughs> yeah the job the job that keeps on taking <laughs> yeah for what they were paying us it was a bunch of us in our early 20s who so none of us had you know we were all yeah. babies when this came out and then a couple old timers there that still were like i'm not touching that thing with a 10-foot pole so it might get you a whole lot of credibility with the next owner 
and all the other three customers over the next 200 years exactly. might come in with one. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> and something else that's been around for a long, long time is fishing. And uh, it's not oh, going boy. away anytime soon, so we might as well get better at dealing with it, yes? Indeed, Doug. And the reason we are talking about fishing in this week's podcast and writing about fishing in general in amongst this week's Naked Security articles is it is still Cybersecurity Awareness Month, hash Cyber Month, hash Be Cyber Smart. And the theme, if you like, in week two is fight the fish. Not quite as alliterative as my Apache, 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 <laughs> but fight the fish. And I wanted to support that campaign in Cyber Month for the reason that I think there are quite a few people out there who kind of think that, you know, fishing is such an old thing. And so many fishes are just so obvious that they're never going to catch me out. The crooks are still doing the same old phishing scams that they were five, six, ten, twelve years ago. This is what mathematicians would call a solved game or a solved puzzle. You know every possible game, every possible way it gets played, and you know that whoever plays second, who's the recipient, wins every time. In the same way when you play tic-tac-toe or noughts and crosses, if you both play correctly, it's always a draw. And you just know that and you can prove it. And I think people they started to think that about fishing. The problem is that the crooks get to try over and over and over again. And although most of them use tired old techniques, it only takes one of them to do something that you don't notice because they're on the top of their game that day and you're at the bottom of your game that day for whatever reason it is or in a real hurry. They get to try a thousand times and you only have to fail once. And if you look at our state of security surveys, Sophos does every year, particularly state of ransomware, you'll know that a significant minority of ransomware attacks, when you trace them back, boil down to, oh dear, one person clicked something they shouldn't and put in a password in the wrong website three months ago, and now it's come back to haunt us. So fight the fish. Not a solved game at all, Doug. No, and if it was... Uh these crooks wouldn't keep trying fishing. Exactly. It's, uh, it's, and it costs them so little to try. I was going right? to say, it's so cheap and Such easy. Such high volume. It's, like a, it's, an ent yeah. it's a gateway drug for a lot of these criminals. So we, we have a lot of uh, resources to help the good people, uh, both at home and at work, starting with our article called Top 10 Fishing Treacheries. <laughs> yes, this is from last year. And this was uh, written by people from the Sophos Fish threat team. Now, Sophos Fish Threat is a tool that allows you to basically, let's be honest, it lets you test your staff for phishing. But the idea is you're not, you don't test them to catch them out or make them feel bad. You're, you're testing them because if you don't, the crooks will. And if they, if they fail your test, you can actually counsel them. You can help them compared to if it was a crook on the line. So we were sharing the top 10 classes of phishing message now this is specifically phishing via email but that's another thing a lot of people go oh, phishing email that's easy i've got an email filter that deals with it but the fishers can use sms they can use instant messaging they can use social networking accounts if they want anything that puts a message in front of you so these admittedly these are all email ones your tax summary is ready from work 
click here to download the document. And you know you're going to need it when you do your tax return. I'll download it now, I'll put it in the directory in my documents folder, so I've got it for later, just in case I lose the email. We all do it, so guess what? That worked fine. Another one, can you believe it, Doug? Courier delivery. Mm-hmm. You know, didn't happen, didn't work. Can you confirm the address? Is this postcode right? Whatever. And the number one <laughs> in our top 10, the one that worked the best, Doug, was lights on in car park. Is this your car? <laughs> yep. <laughs> of course you're going, you're going to check. Is it me? Click the link. Have a look. You're going to click, click, aren't you? Because what harm would it do? It's just an image. Oh, dear. Uh-huh. You know you're never going to fall for it until the day that you do. And then on the workplace front, we have one that is uh, called Gone Phishing Workplace Email Security in Five Steps. Yes, won't go through those steps here because they're high-level stuff that sysadmins can look at. But there are some things you can do in your work email environment that make it less likely that your users will receive phishes in the first place and that can help you create a culture where people are willing to report phishing. And that's really important. You'll hear loads and loads of people these days saying, oh, user education doesn't work. We would have licked spam. We would have licked phishing. We would have got everyone onto 2FA if we just made it compulsory. We just we hadn't let the problem exist between keyboard and chair. The problem is that there are always going to be exceptions that prove the rule. And that's when you actually want all your staff on side, not feeling that they've got no skin in the game and that anything that they can access Anything that IT doesn't block must be okay because IT is in charge. You actually want people on your side. And building that culture, it isn't that difficult, but you have to want to do it. Never give up because there's always going to be a time when someone will say, are you sure that this is right? You realize, oh golly, it's not. (laughs) Basically, in my opinion, the more eyes you have on the problem, the more likely you are to get a report in the first place. Then you can go and look at it. You know, if nobody's reporting things that might be suspicious, the one thing you can be sure of, you aren't going to get any suspicious reports. And then a great technical write-up called Serious Security Phishing Without Links. This is how do you check the URL before you click it if the web page oh, yes. has I been brought to you one. by the attacker? Yes, that's where the crooks put the HTML file as an attachment. It just goes to show how crooks' minds work. Right? They know that people are learning, hey, watch out for links in emails. Because when you click them, you can see the URL, that doesn't look like Microsoft. That doesn't look like example.com. There's only one M in example. (laughs) (laughs) And of course, it's likely that email links might get filtered out anyway by a web filter. And they know, well, people are suspicious of attachments where someone says, here's a document, open it. Here's a PDF file, open it. And they've they've had it drummed into them. Be careful of documents, don't enable macros. So the crooks are sailing down the middle. They're taking the HTML file that will be at the end of a web link and they're making that into the attachment. And you think, what harm can you do by opening an HTML file? And the answer is a lot. And the worst thing is that if you've saved the HTML file to your hard disk, then you open it with your browser. Your browser knows, and I'm making air quotes, that this isn't an untrusted web page that came from a remote web server. It's a file that's on your computer. And most browsers give local HTML more trust than they do external HTML. So the crooks have smuggled the web link through by sending you what was at the end of the web link in the email. They've bypassed your scepticism about attachments 
by having an attachment. You think, oh, it's just a web page. It's not a program. It's not a document. It doesn't have macros. It's just a web page. It's not .js JavaScript. It's just HTML content, heading, boldface, big font, picture here. And of course, then it opens up in your browser. Then there's a link for you to click. And it's funny how people will make that disconnect. They'll go, oh, well, must be safe because I'm at least I'm not clicking a link in my email client. That's dangerous mm -hmm. because that's how phishing links get in. Just a good reminder of why crooks try all these different approaches. They only have to fool some of the people some of the time. They don't have to fool all of the people all of the time. And that's, as I said at the beginning, that's the problem. All right, some great resources in that article that is called Cybersecurity Awareness Month, Fight the Fish on nakedsecurity.sophos.com. It is time for our Oh No, This is an Oldie, but a Goodie involving Comports. Gives you an oh, idea of the date. Oh, man. Yep. DB9, DB25, crossover cables. Oh, those were problem back in the day, even when the day was simpler. <laughs> yeah, simpler times, except a lot more complicated. <laughs> yep. User Reitaro on Reddit, he says, I work help desk for a retail store chain in the UK. I had a call from a store about a till drawer that wasn't opening after a transaction. I asked the user to check that the till was plugged into the back of the PC, then hear him rummaging around under the desk before confirming that it was. Now, our point of sale software occasionally forgets which COM port to operate for the till drawer. So I tell the user that I'm going to try to open the drawer manually and, of course, remotely. I ask the user, can you stand back from the drawer so it doesn't hit you? Um, wow. I then open up the command prompt and try to open the drawer. Echo A, COM 1. Nothing. A for open. Echo A, COM 2. I then hear, ugh, followed by a thud. Hello, I say. I heard something. Did the drawer open? No answer. Hello? After about 20 seconds, a woman picks up the phone laughing. He tells me the user had to go to the bathroom to clean his nose, saying the till drawer hit him in the face and bust his nose. We'll call you back later. Now, whenever I want to reach through the screen and smack a user, I always think back to this story and remember that it's possible. We here at Naked Security don't encourage smacking users, of course, but just goes to show you that uh, sometimes you can inflict physical pain upon people from the other side of the world, whether you mean to or not. I mean... But that's the nice thing with USB ports. Well, yeah. it's a bad thing because it means it's too easy to plug anything <laughs> in anywhere and have it work by mistake. But at least as long as the plug fits. Yep. These days, the problem seems to be that it's so easy, and particularly with things like USB-C, where you don't even have to get the plug the right way around, is that people just assume that if they can't get the plug into the port, more force is obviously required. And you think just how close... USB-A type plugs are to some of the HDMI or the display port sizes. And remember the problem with the old VGA cables? Oh, this is this has only got nine hole. They're trying to wedge it into the VGA port and bend all yeah, the pins. Yeah, bend all the pins. Oh, why is my, everything's purple now. Yep, you bent a pin. Simpler times, except far more complicated. I wonder what the user was doing. They must have been leaning right in front of it if they took one in the nose. Oh, yeah, obviously, yeah. Or maybe, you know, standing up from behind the computer and just just right at the right time. I suppose all's well that ends well. Yeah. If he was able to staunch the bleeding. Yep. The user learned a valuable lesson and we got a great story out of it. <laughs> so. And if you've never used a comport. I was going to say, if you've you ever, some of our younger listeners. Less than nothing. Yep. Um, if you have an oh no that you'd like to submit, we'd love to read it on the podcast. You can email tips at sophos.com. You can comment on any one of our articles or you can hit us up on social 
at Naked Security. That is our show for today. Thank you very much for listening. And for Paul Ducklin, I'm Doug Amath, reminding you until next time to stay, stay secure. secure. <laughs>